Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Lori. We've always thought that the most compelling story strikes the perfect balance between an honest look at the mess of life and the humor that can be found in the mess. To be perfectly honest, we don't really know how to live life without both the humor and the authenticity. Our podcast might be a little bit of whiplash at times. We can spin from hard and deep to humor and laughing on a dime. The hard will be really hard and the truths we share are the ugliest of humanity. We don't intend to make it seem like it's all fine or to pretty up the pain, but we also know that the joy we found is all the more profound because of the pain. So we hope you can stick with us through the ugly because there will also be joy and hope and humor. Welcome to the ugly truth about the girl next door. Hi, welcome back to our podcast, The Ugly Truth About the Girl Next Door. I am Kate. And I'm Lori. And today with us, we have a friend of mine, Alicia Cohen. Um, I met Alicia, or I got connected to Alicia, actually, um, while looking for information to help um, educate Grace, the independent investigators that were coming into um, with Cornerstone Church. When they were beginning their investigation, I felt... You know, like they really didn't know uh, um, a, a lot about familial trafficking. And so I was looking for resources and I um, stumbled across a website called safeforus.org, um, which we'll link in our social media pages um, for people to check out. But Alicia runs that website and I reached out to her and the rest is lovely history. <laughs> so Alicia, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I am um, a special educator here in Delaware, and I have lived experience on familial trafficking. Um, We started SAFE in 2019 to try to bring together adult survivors of familial trafficking and also try to collect more data and survivor-informed trainings for, you know, the public. Um, But I think the biggest thing with SAFE is that It just allows survivors with lived experience the opportunity to connect and interact with each other. And that connection can be such an integral part to healing and removing barriers such as isolation and secrecy. Yeah, I know for sure when I um, first connected with you, I was like, like furiously like messaging you and then furiously messaging Lori like, oh my God, like I connected with this woman and like her story could not be more similar and just the way that, you know, the things that you experienced, the way that you experienced them, the way that you kind of worked through the trauma and the healing of your brain and all of those things. Um, I felt like I was talking to myself and I've said that to you, to you both actually repeatedly. Um, so thank you so much for what you do and for your website. It really, um, it's a really, really excellent resource um, because there isn't enough information about specifically familial trafficking, which is something that we we kind of keep talking about. Um, so, yeah, I guess if you can give us a high-level version of your abuse experience, I guess start where you want to start. Tell us your story. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so my story begins before I was even born, right? As most survivors of familial trafficking, there's typically this intergenerational component. I think you've experienced that as well. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So there can be this transmission of beliefs and attitudes and experience that, you know, lead parents into making the decision to sell their children's body for whatever reason, if it's recreation, status, monetary gain, 
um, or substances. A lot of substance um, abuse can be rampant in these families. Um, not in mine, but that does happen. Um, so my parents first met when they were part of a religious cult in upstate New York around 1976. Um, that cult controlled their communication and behavioral freedoms. Um, it was called the Yay God Group at the Pond. Um, it was around the Syracuse, Ithaca area. Um, the cult disbanded when the leader moved to Israel, and my father then took 12 of those members and started his own group called the Remnant here in Delaware. Um, I was born in 1980, and my earliest memories of life include sexual abuse starting around three years old. In 1984, my father relocated our family to Tulsa, Oklahoma, so that he could attend seminary school at Oral Roberts University, and I was enrolled in the preschool there at Victory Christian Fellowship. The summer following my father's seminary, I was sold for the first time to a family of a little girl that was attending the preschool with us. So I suspect that her father was the one that introduced my father to trafficking. Was that little girl also being trafficked or abused or do you think it was... Yeah, she was absolutely being trafficked and abused and my father came to that situation, met this other family already predisposed with these weird sexual notions that he had learned in the cult and also with his penchant towards pedophilia, which had already started. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So I also suspect that he needed money to um, finance the move because he Got wasn't it. really working at the time. He was just attending seminary. Okay. Um. So we moved back to Delaware following that event and the trafficking continued and it didn't stop until I was 12 years old. Um, Got it. Yeah. So of particular disturbance was when he started a group called Miracle Tabernacle Ministries in the mid to late 80s. He claimed to have psychic powers and be able to heal people through prayer, which is something that he absolutely cannot do. He's just <laughs> a con artist. But yes. there are people out there that believe in faith-based healing. So I don't want people who believe in faith-based healing to think that that is something that this man is actually capable of doing. In the beginning, you said that this was an intergenerational reality. When I use the term intergenerational reality, that can be larger than just whether or not um, my parents were trafficked as child, right? So the intergenerational connection include things like, um, you know, my mother having been sexually abused as a child, which then creates these blinders to sexual abuse mm -hmm. in her own home as an adult. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And also, if you were to learn more about the Yay God group, you would learn about how they controlled each other's sexual activity. And I think that that contributed to my father's notion of being able to utilize sex as a weapon of control. Got it. So intergenerational, not necessarily implying biologic family, but also from one era of family life to the next generation. So very, you know, the carrying on of very traditional gender values um, 
where, you know, the, the man is the head of the household and the family obeys him. He's aligned with God. All of those things contribute to this attitude that can be found in familial trafficking families, especially those that use religion to facilitate trafficking. So um, there, the, the jury's still out on whether or not my mother had some experiences that were similar to mine as a child, but um, her story's not necessarily all of my story, so there's parts of it that I'm not 100% comfortable sharing, if that makes sense. But Absolutely. I do believe that her experience as a child really led her to having these blind spots as an adult where some behaviors that would just seem completely atypical to others were normalized for her and did not seem atypical to her. Yep. That makes sense. Um, right. So, you know, and also just attitudes that my father had towards females and women that he definitely learned from his parents who also had very orthodox religious views. And just that transmission creates a toxic, toxic environment. So you take all of those, you combine the fact that he was then introduced to this cult and it's like a downward spiral. Like one, one step just led to the next to make it easy and easier for him to then be introduced into the world of trafficking and to think that that was a brilliant idea. Right. Oh, that makes sense. I was going to ask if you can talk a little bit about the trafficking itself to the extent that you're comfortable. Um, you know, what were the scenarios? Who was involved? Sure. So my father um, started this Miracle Tabernacle Ministries when we moved back to Delaware. And that also continued, included something called the Traveling Ministers Fellowship. Um, he would host weekly home prayer meetings and church meetings in our home. And he would provide a space to stay for traveling ministers to have respite while they were en route to their next missionary function. That was the overall overarching face to the public. Um, so some of these people that came to stay in our home were legitimate missionaries. And unfortunately, some of these other individuals were there to purchase time to abuse me. Um, and my father would then hide those monies collected from the exploitation as church donations to his ministries. So this would be like a every Wednesday weekly prayer meeting in our house where some of the people that were there were there, you know, just regular church people. And some people that were there were nefarious. Um, unfortunately, faith groups have a, um, they, they hold a notion where they welcome strangers and also children at the same time into a facility, right? And that's that's normalized. And sca it's scary for me, right, that you have people who aren't vetted, who don't have clearances, who are then al allowed into homes with children. Um, it makes sense, the opportunity that was presented. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, if somebody had met your father, would it have stood out to them, do you think, that mm -hmm. he was capable of this? So my father was always described as very weird. That is that is kind of the overarching theme of people who have met my father is there's just something that's a little off about that, about him. And I think what the public sees is um, 
someone who's willing to break boundaries as far as people's physical space, their resources, and their time. Um, but would that extend to necessarily them thinking he was a, you know, ex child exploiter? Perhaps not. Not if you. Not if they were not. Um, aware and savvy enough of the warning flags to be able to see that. Not when you just look at him. If you looked at him and my behaviors as a chronically distressed and terrified child, then yes, I do believe that there, there would have been, there, there should have been people that picked up on it. Unfortunately, there, there weren't. I just think people weren't trained at the time. To the best of my ability, I remember being exploited and abused um, at least weekly during those prayer meetings. And that would also include being filmed during sexual acts with my father, other adults, and other children my own age. Not necessarily during the prayer meetings, but the prayer meetings were always kind of like the kickoff to it. Um, so I remember video cameras and a staged bedroom in my basement where the films were where the acts were filmed. I remember being taken to New Jersey and filmed there with other children. Um, I remember being drugged and placed in rooms where men would then enter and perform sexual acts on me. Sometimes it was one man at a time, sometimes more than one. Um, once I was brought to a pedophile party at a warehouse and that was a particularly horrific night. So these signs of like psychological distress and chronic abuse started to become much more apparent um, around when I was about seven years old and I was taken out of private Christian school and homeschooled. So that manipulation of the education system is also very common for family traffickers, um, the education system and the medical systems. Um, and at that time, I then lacked access to adults outside of my family circle and it was much easier for him to hide the abuse. You stopped in 1992 when I was 12 years old, and I suspect I just aged out of my father's sexual preferences and those of his clientele. And in, in addition, at that time, I ran a really high risk for pregnancy, and I was put back into private school from 12, um, you know, up through high school, and I just tried to live a normal life. Like, I knew that my childhood was atypical, that my experiences and emotions were atypical typical, but I actively did not want to think or talk about it. I had been terrified into silence from the threats of safety to my loved ones, including my mother, my brothers, my pets. My father abused pets in front of me at one time to the point of death. And I was and still am very fond of animals. And I am absolutely convinced that he would carry out such abuses on myself or my current pets if he had access to them. Can I ask you about your brothers? What, yeah. Where were they in all of this? What was that like? Well, my one brother was two years younger than me and my other brother was not born until after the abuse stopped. So he wasn't even in the household at the time, right? Again, back to this like patriarchal type household with me being the female and my brother being the male, there were very separate roles that we played. And my role was to fulfill the exploitative services and his was to be a normal kid. 
Um, yep. Yeah. So I don't know the full extent of the abuses that they suffered or if they really suffered any abuse at all. We were we very much lived different lives in this household. So I do know that in 1999, my father and my mother finally separated and there was this vicious custody battle over my youngest brother. At the time, I was in and out of psychiatric hospitals due to self-harm and suicidality. So I was not present in the my childhood home at the time. But my father lost custody over my brother over allegations of sexual abuse that were documented and presented in family court. I did not become aware of that taking place until adulthood. So our allegations came at were, were presented at different times. Um, although I, I have to say that currently my brother now denies that that sexual abuse took place. So. So do you know in what way that was documented for the court? Like who documented it? Uh, therapy notes. Okay. Yeah. So. Documented via I therapy notes. Your whole, you know, and you and I have talked about this, Alicia, but the the difference of the child of childhood that you had versus your brothers. I, you know, we don't talk a ton on the podcast about my relationship with my brother or what that looked like or where he was, but it is essentially that we had what I tell people constantly when they ask is we had two very different childhoods. We lived in different dimensions in the same home. Um, and it was the same thing of there was a role for me to play and a role for him to play. And his was jet pretty, pretty normal with, you know, still the toxicity of growing up in that home, et cetera, et cetera. And there's things that I know that he remembers and that he knows, um, but two very different childhoods. So I, I remember yeah, talking I just, to you about that and and feeling like, oh my gosh, like I'm not. My brother had access to social functions, to friends, to extracurricular activities, to music lessons, like all of these things that were denied to me. Um, right. Without really any explanation besides your brother's a boy and he, you know, he he needs those things to be able to grow up into a man, you know? So, um, so Alicia, I, mm -hmm. you know, you can, I don't know if you can answer this, but do you believe that your brothers actually remember what you went through and they're lying about it? Or do you think that they, like, I don't, if you've listened to the podcast, we talk about it as sometimes puzzle pieces get lost under the couch. Like we know that they're there, but we don't necessarily, we're not paying attention to them. What's your take on that? Um, it's hard to speak for them, right? Mm -hmm. it, and it's it's hard as as a man or as a male in our society to be able to come forward and say, yes, I was also being sexually abused or I was sexually abused, right? So all I really know is is what they they tell me. Um, I don't remember my brothers being there during the time of my victimizations. I remember other children being there, but not my brothers. Mm -hmm. Um. I do highly suspect, given my brother's therapy notes, my youngest brother, that um, he was being groomed to possibly replace what I had grown out of, mm -hmm. given the fact that he was six, seven at the time. And um, that's kind you know, and, and just the viciousness of the custody bat battle, how my father wanted to take him 
out of state for long periods of time and, and things of that nature. I, I highly suspect he was being groomed as a replacement and my mother was putting a stop to it. Will they say that out loud? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Which kind of brings us naturally to the question of your mother. Mm. Yeah. Now that is a, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> I, I know that. that my mother did walk in on some of the sexual abuse and that she attempted to put a stop to, you know, the father daughter incest that she had witnessed. So, I, and I also suspect that at some point she became privy to some of the more extreme things that were happening. She definitely tried to get me psychiatric help along the way, but I don't know if she, if she really knew the gravity of what was taking place, you know? So where was she when these Wednesday night prayer meetings and the rest of the story would happen? She was hosting. She was hosting the prayer meetings or she was sleeping. So sometimes I would be like taken out of the home in the middle of the night while she was sleeping. Um, My mother had her own mental health issues and she took a variety of medications that made her sleep hard at night. So there, there wasn't waking up when I was taken out of the home or when the filming was taking place in the basement. She was very much unconscious. Okay. Anything else you want to say about her and her role in your life? Um, I miss my mother. I haven't spoken to her in, mm, gosh, since like maybe 2018. It's been about four years now. I, we haven't quite gotten to this point in my story with the civil suit, but my mother hired a defense attorney and would not participate in the civil suit. It is very rare for someone to seek a defense attorney for a civil suit, um, which makes me think that at some level she bore some kind of guilt as to, I, I just think that she knew at some point. I, I can't put a finger on exactly when that knowledge came about, but um, it seems highly unlikely to me that she wasn't privy to information. And that, you know, her hiring the defense attorney was a red flag for me. It was kind of like I could have forgiven her for throwing me under the bus when we were little to protect the overall family. I guess I could have understood that. I didn't understand her protecting herself and my brothers currently today when I was going through the civil and criminal justice process. So maybe you need to kind of explain for people the the criminal justice and civil suit, because honestly, if I was just listening, I would think, well, okay, but if you're suing me in a civil lawsuit, of course, I'm going to defend myself. But I wasn't suing my mother. I was suing my father. The only thing I did with my mother was um, my lawyers wanted to ask her questions. Mm. And she hired a a lawyer and would not participate at all. Um, which makes me think that she has information that would incriminate herself. So I just want to pause us for a second, because we're talking about all of this very matter of factly, Alicia, you know, talking, referencing mental health struggles and letting go of your family and missing your mother and, 
you know, the relationship or lack of relationship with your brothers. I just want to just pause for a moment and acknowledge that this isn't really like, oh, you know, I caught a head cold. This is devastating, overwhelmingly painful truths about your life. Grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved. Um, still have to look at this, like perhaps this is just the stage in our relationship. I still mm. hope that one day my brothers and my mother will come forward with some sort of support. But at least I know that they are not allowing my father access to their children. So all of this speaking out has made a difference on some, on some level. Like that was a huge fear of mine that he was then going to take advantage of his grandchildren, like that this would just keep continuing. And, um, yep. Can you talk a little bit about your father and how he manages? So what is he doing now and how does he manage to continue on? Yeah, so in 1999, they had the the custody hearing and my parents finally divorced, which, you know, I remember being a little girl, like around eight or nine and first learning about divorce and like begging my mother to get a divorce. So it finally happened after years of cajoling her. Um, And at that time, he married a new woman named Carol, who is now deceased. Together, they began purchasing real estate. And I recently came to learn also in light of the civil investigation that they were renting apartments to and collecting money from 37 individual sex offenders during that time. Um, I don't know what he was doing with the property, but it, it terrifies me. Thankfully, he is no longer acting as a landlord. So that that is of some comfort. Um, He then went on to purchase orphanages and build Bible schools in Kenya, the Philippines, Haiti, and he claimed to be reuniting diaspora orphaned children with diaspora Jews in Israel and was hosting tours to all of these countries for traveling ministers. That was what was being advertised on his website. So all of these locations are hotspots for international human trafficking as declared by the U.S. government. During all this time, I was just trying to live a normal life. I tried to, it wasn't until 2013, 2014 that I began to finally reckon with my childhood. Um, How old were you then, Alicia? Uh, 33, 34. Okay. Yeah, so... In 2007, I had stopped contact with my father to the best of my ability. My family had agreed to hide my pregnancy and my location from him. I was terrified he was going to try to get to my daughter. So from about 2007 to about 2013-14, it took about five years of no contact with my father for my brain to feel safe enough to finally admit to myself that I had been at the very minimally sexually abused, right? That was what I was willing to say at that time. But that was enough to getting a, like semi-appropriate treatment and start my brain in on that state of, of healing. Before that, I was just in such an active and automatic state of denial that I was not receiving appropriate diagnoses. I was not on the appropriate medication. I was being, but once I started that, I went on my father's websites uh, and I saw that he was still actively trying to recruit for this traveling minister's fellowship. And that was when I learned about the diaspora tours 
I learned that he owned a yacht and I just completely panicked and started reporting to every agency and every state that I was abused. I filed and told my story 12 different times to no avail. So 12 different times to who? Are we talking about law enforcement? Yes. In multiple states, in multiple agencies, 12 different times. So talk to us about your law enforcement experience. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, the response in my home state was disturbing, to put it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember I filed with... um, it started first with my local police department. I was at the time a mandatory reporter. I think, you know, we all are pretty much mandatory reporters at this point in time, but I was working for an agency in which I was a mandatory reporter and I was having these memories of being sexually abused as a child. And I saw that my father had access to a whole lot of children. So I started filing these reports and My, unfortunately, you know, the puzzle pieces were lost under the couch and I did not have access to a lot of my memories at the time. And there wasn't much that, that they could do. I kept trying. I just kept trying and trying and trying. Um, Okay. So let me just pause you. Okay. So there wasn't that much they could do. However, you're saying your father had all these multiple websites. He, there was somewhere along the line, there was a money trail. To say that I, I, from where I sit, there wasn't much they could do. Okay, I'm not talking about child protection, but the law enforcement end, who was really investigating him? Okay, so um, I filed with the FBI. I filed with local police, which ended up with the attorney general, and I filed with Homeland Security. I also called, you know, the human trafficking hotline several different times and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is what I came to understand is that my father has more rights as an offender than I do as a victim. The statutes for child sexual abuse were removed in 1992. So because my abuse took place prior to 92, they claim there's nothing they can currently do because my father is just entitled to the laws that existed surrounding this crime during the time it took place and not now. Um, So the criminal justice system was just broken for my case. My brain took too long to heal. I came forward too late. It was after the statutes. And I was told there was nothing they could do. Which is insane, but okay. It it doesn't make logical sense, right? It just doesn't make logical sense. I know this. The public knows this. But I just... I don't have access to the video and photographic footage that was taken. And that is pretty much what they want. So thank you for listening to the first of the two-part series, I Am Not Alone, with Alicia Cohen. Um, We will be sharing the second half of that conversation sometime in the next week or so. Um, We just think that it is very important to have other survivors add their voice to Kate so that we all stay really focused on the truth that Kate's experience is unfortunately far from unique, um, and the more that we can hear from survivors, the better able we will be to help our communities be a safer place. If you or someone you know is stuck in a trafficking situation and needs help, please reach out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline by calling one 888 373 
or text HELP, H-E-L-P, to 233733.